Oh, Nina, you're really putting me in a tough spot this month, huh? Uh, what do you mean? Girl, you having me lead this discussion around the gender pay gap. Do the work, baby boo. Do the work. Girl, okay. Fair, fair, but I just don't want to, like, you know, like, mansplain or massplain. I don't... Okay. Just do it. Come on. Okay, let's get into it. So before we jump right into the discussion of what the gender pay gap or wage gap is, why don't we just give a quick ode to feminism, right? But I want to be clear, we're not talking about white feminism. Um, We want to shout out how feminism's underpinnings and continual work help to pave the way for women in work. White feminism. I can't wait to hear more. No, we're not talking about white feminism. I mean, we are, but we aren't, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) So, of course, right, the first wave of feminism focused on women's suffrage. This was from the early 1900s to 1960s. Um, But it's important to note that women entering the workplace really became a focus during the second wave of feminism. This was during uh, from the 1960s to about the 1980s. And so this became a focus along with some other key things such as reproductive rights and overall reducing inequalities between men and women. So the next wave of feminism uh, was from around the 1990s to 2000s. And this really brought along a focus to embrace individualism and diversity because once again, which we're not talking about, white feminism, right, which you might hear about, um, really didn't think about inclusion or the issues that women of color face. So uh, womanism delineated itself from feminism and uh, through its inclusivity, Um, started to have a focus with a racial lens about issues that affected women. Uh, During the third wave, uh, diversity was embraced, and it's actually still a major component of feminism today, which we can see its importance, especially when we see how the manifestation of both sexism and racism contribute to the gender pay gap. That's interesting. I mean, I always thought feminism was like about bra burning and, you know, riding around naked on bikes and stuff like that. Um, (laughs) And who says it's not? One of my like first exposures to feminism that I actually thought was accessible to me was through the work of Gloria Jean uh, Watkins, better known by the pseudonym of Bell Hooks, R.I.P., Um, So Bell Hooks was a queer American writer and feminist thinker and thought leader. One of the first books I read was by Bell Hooks, and it was uh, Feminism is for Everyone. Uh, She was extremely prolific, like like wrote over 40 books, and to me is one of the most uh, foremost feminist thinkers of our time. Uh, She died in just like this past December of 2021 at the tender age of 69, but really has left a void in a lot of the spaces where Black feminism, critical thinking, um, um, and attention to making feminism accessible beyond white feminism to everybody. So um, it's the loss is felt. Mm, shout out to Bell Hooks, and thank you for um, you know bringing her up in this podcast. One of 
the first feminist books I read was written by her um, called Committed, I believe, and talked about relationships and queer identities on all this and really helped me to expand my understanding of what a healthy relationship is, might look like, identities around queerness and around gender. And so I really appreciate you shouting her out. And when we think about like the work that she's done around inclusivity of queer bodies, of Black bodies, bodies of color uh, within the feminine, uh, feminism movement, um, that that's a huge, huge presence. And it's actually something that was still felt in the fourth wave, which we're currently in of feminism, which focuses on combating sexual harassment, assault, and misogyny. So when we think about things like the hashtag MeToo movement, and I think about the founders of that movement and uh, being uh, a Black woman, right? you talking about bell hooks really resonates. And so when we think about the issues that are brought up in the fourth wave of feminism, we can see how they really intersect with um, women in work, especially in the workplace, such as um, sexual violence and harm done physically um, and sexually. And in this frame of what we're talking about is a lot of harm that's being done economically through the gender wage gap. Okay, so let's define the gender wage gap or, you know, pay gap. So the gender wage gap refers to the difference in earnings between women and men. And experts have calculated that this gap um, can arise and come in a multitude of ways. But the varying calculations basically point to a consensus that women consistently earn less than men. And the gap is wider for most women of color. Once again, the hierarchy is added. So basically to the white men's dollar, uh, American, Indian, and Alaskan Native women make 57 cents. Asian women make 90 cents. Black women make 62 cents. Hispanic and Latino women make 54 cents. And white women make 79 cents. Nia, what comes up for you? I mean, what doesn't come up for me? I'm like, pay me now. What you mean? (laughs) (laughs) This is wild. Like, it's not surprising, but like to see the numbers so disparate like this is really unfortunate. Like Asian women are the closest, but still not even a dollar, you know, at at the dollar. So um, it's disheartening. We work really hard. We face sexism and racism, and um, it's it's shown. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I just think about how everything's compared to the white man's dollar. And, like, if that's just not enough for y'all to know racism, sexism, those things exist. I don't know what is, right? Because we can't compare these things to the black man's dollar or Latino man's dollar because, right, there's the intersection of what's at play, both... Um, racism and sexism. And, you know, one of the uh, communities impacted the most that that we see by the gender wage gap is Hispanic and Latino women. So the Economic Policy Institute um, talked uh, about and investigated what are the cause for some of the for some of this gender wage gap? So much of these differences they found were grounded in the presence of occupational segregation. So, for example, Latina women 
uh, were vastly overrepresented in low-wage jobs and relatively underrepresented in high-wage jobs. So some folks argued, and it was an incorrect argument, right, um, that Latino women were choosing, once again, choosing lower paid professions. Um, but, you know, further education did not close the sizable wage gap between white non-Hispanic men and Latino women. And in fact, as Hispanic women and Latino women increased their edu educational attainment, their pay gap with white men actually increased as well. So even uh, Hispanic and Latino women with an advanced degree earned less than white men who only have a bachelor's degree. Once again, Latina and Hispanic women with an advanced degree earned less than a white man with only a bachelor's degree. Girl, student loans for what? Like that, like why? And so that is a statistic that bears repeating because the idea is that on average, white men with only a college degree are going to earn $7.53 more than um, Latina women with an advanced degree. I mean, the thing is this though, like I, I just, I can't with this right now. I like can't handle this because number one, who would choose a lower paid profession? Who's like, okay, I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars a year or 30,000. Which do you choose? Who's going to be like, yes, yes. Give me the lower paying one. This is one that I choose. So I have so much, I have like a lot of problems with that like to even come to that conclusion that people are choosing that um those professions like sure if you come from generational wealth and you want to you know do something as a hobby and and make you know twenty thousand dollars or whatever sure but like if you have mouths to feed you're trying to make it in life if you have options of high paying jobs and low paying jobs chances are you are not picking the low paying jobs you're being shuttled into the low paying jobs so i'm just like uh like it's just it's when like science goes wrong right it's like when people do this type of work and study the studies and do that but don't like really think about what are the root causes they just come to their conclusions and go there but not necessarily thinking about what's driving people to to that mm to um to come to those conclusions right so i don't know it's like when science can be used for for bad and perpetuation of racism and racist ideas mm. yeah um that that makes a lot of sense and i and i also feel like right the same is true for black women right so it's it's not unique to let latina women or hispanic women but certainly seems like it's even more prevalent, but I know that the same is true for black women, like black women, like you said, earn 62 to 63 cents on the dollar for every white non-Hispanic man. So even controlling for education. So like you said, even that means women, black women at the highest levels of education are still feeling this, are still impacted. So black women that go to college are still not earning more than white men that go to college or even at the same rate as white men that go to college. They're, they are earning like the same as white men that go to high school and have finished high school. So like, don't talk to me about pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if only you would try hard and do this and do that. No, these black women and Hispanic women are at the top 
of their profession. They've gotten the most degrees, advanced degrees, and still are not being paid what they deserve. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that Black women um, are like the participate in the labor market at a high per, a participation rate. So almost 60% of Black women are in the labor force in some way, including Black moms. So Black women that are mothers, they're even higher levels at 76% of Black women who are moms are in the labor market, are in the workforce right now. So these women are you know, bringing f- food, money, shelter, whatever to their families, and they're not being paid what they should. So, oh, I just, it's hard for me to do this right now. I appreciate the combo, but it just is enraging. Mm, snaps. That's, that's the tea, for real. The, the great American lie, the myth of meritocracy. And you know what's interesting, given what you said and what I shared about uh, Latino women in education, uh, researchers have said um, that educational attainment has been one of the biggest contributors to decreasing the gender pay gap. So it's interesting to take that into account and still know that there's still this vast difference when we look at uh, the intersection of education, race, and gender. Just in general and overall, from the outset of the second wave of feminism, the gender wage gap has fallen from about 36 to 38% in the 1970s, um, between uh, 18 to 21% uh, about 10 years ago. So that was from a study that that looked across how the gender uh, wage gap has changed, but they didn't really consider long-term changes and still confirm that there's a substantial wage gap that remains today. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you're a very accomplished person who has been perceived as femme and woman, and you are definitely blackity, black, black, black. Uh, definitely a high <laughs> educational <laughs> education attainment, right? Right, girl. You got you got your advanced degree and said, you know what? Let me get some more degrees. Um, I'm curious <laughs> about like what is your personal experience? Uh, I guess with wages, whether that be about negotiating or knowing your worth, or like. Like what, 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 what comes up for you as you think about your personal wages? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I think about when we have this conversation is often my mind goes to male dominated industries, right? Like women that happen to find themselves in industries that are Mm. not, um, do not, that don't have gender parity and thinking about, yeah, of course, like the one woman that is in this firm or in this whatever business of course, they don't make as much, but I think um, just because of sexism, right? But I think also in um, careers and professions where it is heavily women dominated, right? Like I think about my own um, field, pediatrics, that I think at least has 80% of pediatricians are women. Don't quote me on that. And <laughs> don't quote me on that. I'm just like pulling a, a stat from my head. But the people at the tops of my profession, So it tends to be the division heads, the chairs, the deans, whoever are men. So even though my field, if you look at it, you're like, wow, there's so many women working in pediatrics. When you look at who's running pediatrics or running the division or running, you know, uh, profession, Mm -hmm. it tends to be men. 
and men that are at those levels make more than women, certainly. But then even the men that are at the same levels as women in those mm-hmm. women, do- women dominated professions also make more. So it's, it's on so many levels. And in fact, in many institutions, I think across the country, they're really starting to look at equity, um, a way to do an equity pay review. And and I know one institution had to bring up salaries substantially for women because they were just so disparate. And this is pediatrics, again, very woman-driven, led. Um, but the salaries were so disparate between women and mm-hmm. men at the same institutions, mm-hmm. at the same rank, that do the same job. So, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. really frustrating to think about, mm-hmm. like, the plight of women and how far... Um, we still have to go and making that making sure that there is gender pay equity. I think for me personally, one of the reasons why I was really interested in business is because I was like, oh my God, I've been to school for all these years and I still can't make any goddamn money. Like what is happening? I'm sorry, funny, but not funny. And like how do I, how do I, how do I be, how do I come up? Like, I'm just saying like, I have, you know, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a MD, um, hopefully soon an MBA. And it's just like, it's still just such a struggle. It's such a struggle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. Well, one, I appreciate you sharing, sharing that and open and honestly, like, I think a, a, a big part of what you shared makes me think of when you talked about like women in men dominated fields um one the first connection i had was being in the realm of counseling we are historically have been known to be a profession that's filled with white women right white women who are counselors white women who are clients and seeking uh therapy but one thing that always gets me is when i go to these conferences and I see the leaders right of counseling and then being men or I see like who are the faculty and there's a lot of men there and it seems to be disproportionate and so when you're talking about especially these dominant not just dominated fields but right how leadership has been dominated by men and the role of sexism I got totally connected with that and one thing that comes up for me Uh, specifically as a counselor, you know, we have this sect of career counseling. Uh, There's a career theory known as Gottfriedson's career theory, where she talks about how career, the career process and career development, we don't actually choose a career. We, um, We use a process of circumscription and compromise. So we basically eliminate from the choices what we have left, what we can do, and we compromise with kind of what's left. But within that, she talks about the role of gender typing and for jobs and how that happens at a young age and that people are choosing or pushed to do certain jobs based off their gender. Um, and so I, I was thinking about, right, and so when we think about the big push of women in STEM, because we know that y'all were only pushing men to STEM and saying that women couldn't do those kind of jobs and courses like that's what really comes up for me is not just like this idea of choice but how this has been through society how how these phenomenon um of jobs and what people do and dominated fields how that has been shaped by the isms within our society sexism classism um racism all those things 
that's fascinating. I love that. I love when you bring in theories and stuff and you talk about stuff I've never heard of. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's one of my she low key was super problematic, but it's low key one of my favorite um career theories. Um so, you know, uh what interests me though along with kind of what we've talked about about the gender pay gap is not only what's been right explained a little bit but mostly about what still lies um unexplained and so um there was a study by Littman and others in about 2020 that looked at the gender pay gap in an anonymous online labor market and they provided evidence that gender pay gaps can arise despite the absence of overt discrimination uh, despite the absence of labor segregation and inflexible work arrangements, um, even after accounting for experience and education and other human capital factors were controlled for. Um, so basically, within the study, uh, it really highlighted the need to examine other possible causes to the gender pay gap uh, other than what is, has just been explained. And so other parts of this phenomenon that are going on. I think what's interesting to me is a few things that you said. One of them, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier, which was around occupational segregation and essentially this idea that certain genders are getting shuttled or driven into certain jobs, um, genders, and I would also say race, ethnicities as well. So I want to just think about this has been really salient when it comes to COVID-19. And I know we, we weren't necessarily going to talk about this now, but when you think about who has mm -hmm. been most affected by COVID-19, right? We think about Black, Latinx, and Hispanic people. Mm -hmm. And when you think about some of the reasons behind that, we think about those people that are essential workers, people that didn't have the option to telework, people that had to be in person and were lower wage workers, so weren't given all the protections, like weren't able to call out, weren't able to do all of the things that kind of white collar workers were able to do and keep themselves and their family safe. And so it's, it's all cyclic and thinking about infection and thinking about racism, classism, sexism, all of those things and how they work together. And I think um, that comes up for me when we're talking about um, this study because occupational segregation, obviously, and um, labor segregation plays a part in what Littman has found. Like, even when you um, try to blind the gender, right, of, of um, applicants or, and try to, like, compare them. So even after you get women into that job, essentially what you're telling me is that um, some women won't even apply just because given the, the discrimination, the work arrangements, all of that, some women will apply maybe and get the job and then be pushed out of the job because of the, the because of the demands of the job. The job is not there for women, right? It's based on probably white, male, heteronormative work culture. Um, and so I think that this is so important for us to think about because immediately when I think about solutions to this, like I'm like, okay, how do we how do we actually close the gap? Um, you and I have mm -hmm. talked about before about the orchestra and how I was really impressed that the orchestra started doing these blind auditions and how initially, um, and I can't remember which orchestra started this practice, but 
um, actually had the people play um, behind a curtain. So the judges could just decide who actually was the best musician and not take into account their race, their gender, any of that, just literally hearing the music. Once they were able to do that, bringing, you know, orchestrals closer to a 50-50 balance. And in some cases, there's more women. But after that, like beyond the music, right? Like, what does that mean for academia, for medicine, for science, for teaching? When A, we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's so many work arrangements that were not flexible, that had to become flexible, or that weren't flexible and still will never be flexible. Um, and how does that impact women? And how does that impact their pay? Um, and how do we move forward, right? When we know that just blinding an application or just blinding you know, um, interviews won't get the job done totally. So where do, what do we do? Mic drop. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Um, once again, I feel like you're putting me in an awkward position of trying to mansplain what to person explain what to do, queer explain it. Um, <laughs> I feel like men created this problem, so go forth and figure it out. Well, good, g- great thing, great thing. I don't always identify as man good answer Uh, but i guess that still means that still means that i should be coming up with partial answers at the very very least um you know i think right we need to probably a couple things start to reconceptualize what we consider to be labor and how we pay for it because when i think about things that uh women do that's not considered labor such as like second shift work and stuff um right that that is that is labor um and should be resourced or funded in some way but i also think we and when i say we i'm speaking of society which ain't really me white cis males whatever men but um determined what you know, is most important and what gets paid most. And the reason why I bring this up is because when I think about important things uh, like mental health work, uh, think about things like pediatrics, when I think about things like teachers and you talk about, right, these fields and when we talk about what was woman dominated, like these are super important jobs. Why aren't these people getting paid more? Well, because they weren't maybe run by, didn't have a lot of men in them. The work of women was dismissed. Um, and so I think there needs to we need to re-examine what equity looks like, particularly with um, with a lens that is n- not misogynistic, hopefully, um, and that we can truly value uh, the merit of what we need and what we find um, worth and deserving in society. Um, because if COVID, I know, taught y'all some things, y'all gonna argue about the vaccine, y'all gonna argue about masks, but I think what it told y'all is y'all don't want to teach y'all little babies at home, and you want them to be taught by teachers at school. Well, pay the teachers. Uh, pay your uh, healthcare workers. Pay your mental health providers. Um, and, and ultimately, also, just, you know, pay women. Uh, if that, that would be some places to start, I think, if I were, you know, head of anything. But I think what I would also do is put women in leadership positions to make those important decisions. 
um, particularly black women. Shout out to Katanji Brown Jackson. Yes, like we need to el- put women in positions of power uh, and it be a form of, of equity to make these decisions, but not in a way, right, where we're just going to perpetuate um, the glass cliff, right? Um, so those are my thoughts. What What do you think, Mia? Well, first, I want to know what the glass cliff is, so I'm going to need you to answer that. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts. Okay. The glass cliff, right, is uh, a concept. So we're familiar with the glass ceiling, right, that women can make it so high within like work, but don't have these leadership positions, director, managerial positions, kind of as we both talked to that we've seen in our field. Um, so the idea they would cl- shatter the glass ceiling. Well, there's also this concept called the glass cliff that when a company or organization isn't doing well, they put a woman as a leader or CEO and they don't give that her the proper resources to really uh, help that company succeed in ways. And so they end up like pushing her off a cliff not setting up her up for success. So that's why I'm saying, right, we should put women in these roles of leadership and power, but not in a way where it's sacrificial. Mm, I've seen that done to um, women and Black women and, you know, other people of color. So I think that's broadly mm-hmm. applicable. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also one of the things I feel like we kind of touched on didn't explicitly say was uh, women's work or the work that women tend to do revolves around children. And one of my colleagues I think is really important. It's not always obviously revolves around children, but a lot of the work um, of children is done by women is, is, um, is not valued. One of my colleagues talks about that a lot, that children are not valued really in this society. Like they don't vote, they don't work they haven't really contributed to society in meaningful ways in, um, through the eyes of adults and specifically white men, adults. Um, so they don't have power. And because they don't have power, work with them is seen as volunteer and charitable and not necessarily meaningful. And so I think that's important to remember when you talked about what should be paid. The same colleague I'm talking about led this study that I think is really fascinating about children that have special health care needs and who tends to take care of those children and how how much money that they forego by re- leaving the workforce and by um, actually taking care of their children that are children with special health care needs. You know, I think it's an important study because it actually quantifies how much money they tend to lose. So they lose about $18,000 a year because they're out of the workforce there or they're working part-time and they're taking care of their kids when and in fact one of your solutions and i think makes sense is that they should be paid for that work if it were anybody else caring for that child they would have to be paid so why can't women and those who care for children and care for um others right um why why can't they get paid that's 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 number one And I think the second thing, I saw something that, you know, some companies are trying to do to try to reduce the the gender pay gap. One of the things that I feel like is hard is when you're first hired at a company, kind of where you start out, it kind of limits your ability to grow. And so some of the companies, what they'll do is they'll ask you, how much did you make at your last job? 
And when they ask you that, right, due to a whole bunch of different reasons, you may not have made that much at your last job. We just talked about sexism, racism, classism, occupational segregation, like all of the things. And so if you only made like, you know, $30,000 at your last job, then they are basing your current salary on what you did before. And when you come in a new job at a lower pay, you know, at a lower pay line, then it's harder to move up and it's harder to get uh, ahead or at least on par with your, you know, with your colleagues, especially your white men colleagues, because they come in higher, they probably negotiate and are more more successful in their negotiation. So we need to think about transparent ways that we can pay people the same amount of money for the work that they do that's equal, right? Like it just, it's, it's just really that simple and making it transparent. Yes, MBA. Yes, MBA. I'm here for it. Transparency. Yes. Thank you. I, I love that. Well, Dr. Sister Nia Heard Garris, you really put me through a tough one this month. Um, but in doing it, you did well. I, well, thank you, thank you. I don't, I don't need any ally cookies. I, I'll, I'll take criticism and all that. Thank you for the challenge, the love and support. And also, I hope that our listeners really challenge themselves to also, hopefully, continue to create spaces for women uh, in leadership, but also to, um, you know, uplift their voices um, as allies, women and femmes. Um, but other than that, that's all I have, except for one more thing, a reminder. Stay Can you try to guess the top 10 women-dominated fields? Okay, so are we saying fields or jobs? Uh, they're not really fields, they're more like jobs. Okay, this is in no particular order, though. Yep, doesn't have to be. It's not, I don't have it in order. I'm just saying.